Well, we are in week four of our sermon series titled Covenants and Second Chances. And so far, we have looked back at the story of Noah and God's covenant with Noah and his family to never destroy the earth by water again. The next week, we looked at the story of Abraham and Sarah when God came to them in their old age and said, you are going to have a baby and you will have a multitude of ancestors that will come after you, outnumbering the stars and the sky. Last week, we talked about the Ten Commandments, and we talked about how those Ten Commandments let us understand what it means to live as God's covenant people. And within all of these covenants lies a second chance, a gift of grace for those of us who receive them. Thus far, our stories and scripture passages have been pretty familiar, I would say, but today's maybe not so much. This is the last of the five murmuring stories in the book of Numbers. You can almost hear what they were doing by the word murmuring. They were complaining, they were grumbling, they were whining, they were tired, they were hungry, they were thirsty, and they let God and Moses hear all about it. What I think is so interesting about this is they seem to have forgotten about where God brought them out of, out of the bondage and slavery in Egypt. Now they are walking in the wilderness and God has continued to provide for them. You may have noticed in the passage they say, we have no food, we have no water, and we detest this miserable food. Because God had continued to feed them, giving them this manna from heaven, Perhaps it wasn't their preference, but God continued to provide for them, to lead them. And this is because God had made a covenant with Israel to be God's people at Mount Sinai. And so God was upholding the end of the covenant with the people. So what happens in response to their murmuring and complaining? Well, God sends in snakes, poisonous snakes. And I have to say for me, Adding the word poisonous in front of the snakes doesn't really make a huge difference. Because if there is a snake involved, I want nothing to do with it. I will go to the other side of the yard. I will go inside. It doesn't matter to me if they are actually really good for keeping away critters or really harmless, good for the garden. I don't know. I don't know if anyone else feels that way, but to me, there is just no good snake. And I'm actually really afraid of snakes. And I think this fear for me began at an early age. We lived in the Rosenton United Methodist Church Parsonage from 2000 until 2004. And for those of you not familiar, Rosenton is a small community in Baldwin County um, outside of Robertsdale. And even before or even after the addition of Bucky's and the Beach Express, Rosenton remains extremely rural. And the parsonage that we lived in, which was owned by the house that my dad served, is surrounded by cotton fields, huge fields. And so with the abundance of fields and the rural nature of the community, there were a lot of critters. And so my, my memories of this house is we would be in the yard and there would be snakes or salamanders. And it always just gave me the heebie-jeebies, you know? I just, I never wanted anything to do with them. But that is nothing compared to the experience that my friend Taylor Clare had living in that same parsonage 12 years later. She was appointed to serve this church, which was kind of neat because, you know, I had grown up there and now she was serving there. But she started serving there after seminary. So she moved from Atlanta, right in the heartbeat of Atlanta, to this really rural community 
in Rosenton, and she is not from the South, so it's a whole thing. But she told me two stories that have haunted me about snakes in that house. <laughs> the first, while doing laundry one day, she had been washing some towels and pulled the warm clothes, the towels out of the dryer, put them in a basket and walked to another room and came back and then noticed there was a snake coiled up inside her clean, warm towels. Ugh. But the second is far worse. She was letting her dog outside one day and opened the back door, and when she did, a snake fell from the doorframe and landed on her head. And she has like really curly, big hair. I just can't even imagine, you know, it's just horrible. And you know, I have to say that my experiences at that house were nothing like that. You know, I just see a snake and I, I don't like it. But for her, I think I would have been calling the bishop and saying, I think it's time for me to move. I think, I think I need to get out of this parsonage. So I kind of feel bad for the Israelites here because God's punishment for complaining is snakes, poisonous snakes that are killing people. I mean, this seems like a pretty high punishment for some murmuring, if you will. But I have to say that these slithering creatures certainly brought the Israelites into sharp reality. The snakes make them stop and say, well, maybe we didn't have it too bad before when we did have food and we were being led away from slavery and bondage. It wasn't long before they said to Moses, we were wrong, we have sinned. We're not so hungry after all. Please pray to God and ask him to take away these snakes. And so Moses does. He prays to God and says, you know, we got a situation here, God. These snakes are biting everybody. It's really bad. We need you to step in. So God provides a solution, but it's not exactly the answer that they were looking for. They were asking for the snakes to be removed. But instead, God said to Moses, why don't you make a snake out of bronze and put it up on a large pole for everyone to see? And then, when someone is inevitably bitten by the snakes that will remain around you, you can look up at this snake on a pole and live. What a strange thing that is supposed to bring healing. But that's what Moses does. He creates this bronze serpent and puts it up on a pole, and it works. So whenever someone is bitten from then on, all they have to do is look up at this snake icon, and they will live. I just wonder why God would choose this means of healing. It seems so strange. But it seems clear that the snake that Moses lifted up in the wilderness was not an ordinary snake, but rather an object lesson to show the Israelites who was really in charge, who was really powerful in this situation. Because when God asked Moses to make the snake out of bronze and to raise it up on the pole, God was showing them that God was greater and stronger and more powerful even than these snakes that had infested their tents all around their feet biting people. God said, I want you all to know and remember that I am greater and more powerful and capable of saving you and giving you life. Because remember, God had made a covenant with these Israelites and God upheld God's promises to save them and to give them life. So this snake, rather than representing death, represents God's forgiving love and mercy for humanity, even in the midst of their complaining, sin, and selfishness. Instead of leaving them helpless in their state of need, God stepped in and made a way for the people to live, even after 
they had been bitten by one of these snakes. In the New Testament, Jesus talks about this passage, and I think it will be helpful for all of us to hear how Jesus uses this passage, because it does help us make sense of the whole situation a little better. So hear these words from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So there are some clear parallels between these two accounts. In Numbers, there was a problem. There were snakes. They were biting people. People were dying. And so the solution that God provided is a way to look up and live, a way to continue on with life on earth after this poison entered their body. And in the New Testament, when Jesus is speaking, the problem was human sin and brokenness. And the solution was Jesus being lifted up on a cross. And this hadn't happened yet, but Jesus was foreshadowing it. And I think it's really interesting. Sterling earlier used the phrase, the absurdity of the cross. And that's what it would have been for people at the time too. We're so familiar now talking about Jesus was raised up on a cross because we know that there's resurrection coming. But for people at the time, the son of man being raised up on the cross might look a whole lot like a serpent being raised up on a pole. A snake for a snake, a human for human. But Jesus' death was for eternal life. Life beyond death, life beyond the fears that we have while we're here on earth. When Jesus was raised up, it changed everything. In both, sin, in both scenes, amidst human sin and brokenness, amidst complaining and snakes, amidst hopelessness and belief, God provides a path for life. And our God has always been a God of forgiveness, healing, and restoration. From the very beginning in the garden, when sin entered into humanity, God did not give them the death that they were told they would receive, or perhaps the death that they deserved from eating from this one forbidden tree, but instead God gave them a way to live. And so when Jesus was raised up on the cross, he gave everyone for all of eternity a way to live everlasting, everlasting life from those in the garden to the Israelites and to us today. Each year during the Lenten season, we travel with Jesus to the cross where he will be lifted up. And we often refer to Lent as a journey because 40 days is kind of a long time. There's a lot of life that happens within those 40 days. And it is supposed to be an immersive spiritual experience. We begin Lent with the sobering reminder that from dust we came and to dust we will return. We spend 40 days wrestling with how our lives do or do not reflect the goodness and love of God in the world. We spend 40 days giving something up or taking something on for the sake of reorienting our hearts to something holy and good. And then, with each day that passes, we are one day closer to celebrating the joy of Easter. But before we get there, we do have to journey and to trek with Jesus to the cross, 
remembering that we are not all that different from the Israelites. We still grumble and complain and are in desperate need of a savior. For Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but in order to provide a path to life eternal. The past two weeks have been kind of a whirlwind for me and Micah. Many of you know that two weeks ago his mom died unexpectedly. And, um, you know, it's been really hard, not only because it was unexpected, but also because she was so young. She was 50 years old, and you have to think, this shouldn't have happened. This, you know, you, you want to ask God why. Why did this happen? But I tell you, we have felt your prayers, we have appreciated your cards and your phone calls and reaching out in sympathy. I truly don't know how people go through a loss without a faith community, without people that they know are with them, even just in spirit. So I thank you so much for that because I know many of us in this room know what it feels like to lose a parent and it's just an incomparable loss. But I found that even in tragedy, God continues to work in mysterious ways, bringing life from death, restoring hope where there was once only fear and grief, and renewing our senses to notice the ways that our loved ones are somehow still with us, even in the community of saints. My dad died almost 13 years ago, and there's not a day that goes by when I don't think about him at least once. And someone told me that that would be the case at his funeral. I remember um, the choir director at my church at the time came up and said, you're going to think about him every single day. And I thought to myself, well, I don't know about every day. I just couldn't imagine. But what he has said has remained true. I do think about him every single day. And something that often reminds me of him, when we were living in that parsonage in Rosenton, with all the fields, with all the critters, there were also a lot of birds. And often we would see these huge flocks, you know, I think they're called cowbirds, the the black birds that gather together in these big fields. And somehow, at the same time, they lift up together and will fly and land on a tree and overtake all of the greenery of the tree. And then at the same time, they lift up and go on to the next field or across the sky, you know, painting the sky with these birds. And I remember my dad would always comment on them. Like every time we would see this happen, he would say, I just don't understand. How do they know to stay together? How do they know when it's time to rise up and to move on? How, how does it happen? How do these birds do it? And so I always think of my dad when I see the birds. And a few years ago, I got these three birds tattooed on my arm. And I know people have a lot of opinions about tattoos. But this was very important to me, to have this permanent reminder on my arm. And also, when people ask me about it, I get to share with them about my dad and his love for the birds. But also, it's a reminder to me to look up. Because when we look up and we see the birds, when we see plants, when we see flowers that grow and live without worrying, without spinning, without toiling, I think it's easier for us to remember that God cares for us too, that God loves us, that God has made a way for us to live eternally, if only we will look up. And I think that this is what faith is all about, believing that God has the power to save, to heal, and to bring life. 
And we know and proclaim this truth even in the midst of death and pain and hardship. Because when we look up, we're not just putting our head in the cloud and ignoring the pain of this life. Because when we love deeply, we grieve deeply. But when we look up, we are looking up with hope, believing that God has made a way for us to live with him eternally. And with that kind of hope, we can live. We are halfway through Lent, friends, halfway through our trek to the cross. And as we continue on these next, this next half of Lent, as we repent and reorient and pray and seek God, I hope that you will remember to look up. Perhaps when you look up, you will see a rainbow that will remind you of the covenant that God made with Noah. Perhaps when you look up at night, you will see a sky full of stars and remember that God kept God's promise to give Abraham and Sarah children when they were too old to have children. Perhaps when you look up, you will see something that is so special for you that you know is God saying, I love you, I care for you, and I have made this just for you. I pray and hope that you will look up and know that God has made a way for all of us to live eternally. Thanks be to God. Amen.